what I'd like to do this evening <clears throat> is begin to reflect on a particular teaching of the Buddha called the Bade Karata Sutta. <clears throat> I think it'll take more than one evening to draw out some of the implications and um, just a few words on why pick a sutta to teach with, to practice with, why this particular one. For those of you who are very new, a sutta, or you might see it as sutra, sometimes in the Sanskrit, uh, has to do with sort of a, the analogy being a beads on a string, sort of wise words that are put together on a string, teachings. And there are many, many talks that the Buddha is supposed to have given. I don't know. We're dependent on what we have available. Uh, it's the best we can do. It was a long time ago. But however these talks came about, if you read them, so many of them are extraordinarily useful, intelligent and useful, that however they came about, they're of immense benefit to the human race, potentially. So these are teachings, but the Buddha was not a philosopher and had no intent on putting together a comprehensive theory of the universe or of existence. Rather, all of these talks, some are very brief, some are lengthy, came about in response to particular situations having to do with particular yogis meditating, running into obstacles, confusion. And out of it came a clear exposition of particular forms and techniques and what we think of as Buddha Dharma. Uh, I see the suttas, and there have been a few that have been extremely helpful in my life, as vehicles uh, which can be used to help the important goal of self-knowledge, self-knowing to be attained, for us to, to help us come to know ourselves, which means the workings of this mind, how we behave comes out of this mind, and mind here means more than thinking. The problem when you get involved with these suttas is that many of us have a history or a lot of experience and high competence in scholastic matters, and we get all caught up in commenting on the words, and the words are pointers. They're really all designed to help us practice. It's not for debate in just a rhetorical way. And we get so caught up in analyzing and, and speculating on the pointers that the pointers don't get a chance to do their job, which is the point. And what they're pointing to is our life as it is. And those of you who've been around for a while know that although faith has an important role to play in Buddha Dharma, it's not an exclusively faith-oriented practice. We're expected to take 
whatever is given to us, these teachings, and to test them. I think this is probably one reason why many people, uh, modern people who have lots of education, perhaps scientifically inclined, are drawn to the teachings. We're not meant to just take them on blind faith. We're supposed to take them and test them in the fire of our life. And if they stand up, and to keep using it, a few have, been, have stood up for me, been very, very helpful. This is one of them, the sutta. Self-knowledge or self-knowing. What we think of as Buddhism, which I personally think is the wrong term, it's not an ism. I prefer terms like Buddha Dharma. Um, have everything to do with understanding the workings of our own mind, our own heart. That's what it's all about. And how do, you, how do you get to know your own mind and your own heart? Well, as Unindraji, who was a teacher of many of us, an Indian a Vipassana teacher, he would often ask people, why do you want to study Vipassana? And the common answer certainly was mine. I want to get to know myself. And he said, oh, okay, sit down and take a look. That's what we're doing here. Of course, he knew that it's more than just sit down and take a look. Because to know yourself can happen anywhere, in any posture, in any place. And that's Michael's lovely phrase of culture, mindfulness culture, culture of mindfulness. By the way, I like that phrase very much. It came up in a, a staff teacher meeting at Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. And I thought it was so lovely that I thought I must have thought of it first. <laughs> Do you remember? <laughs> yeah, it was, I saw how shameless the mind can be. So there was silence in the room after 30 seconds. I acknowledged that it was Michael's contribution <laughs> to Dharma, to Dharma in the West. Mindful of what? Well, um, I'd like to, before I go much further, because uh, very early, in my own practice, couldn't be more early because it was the first teacher I had of, of these things. I'd like to dedicate any merit in Buddhist circles. Uh, when you do something that hopefully has some benefit, uh, which br brings some merit, it's a good idea to transfer that merit somewhere else to not take it for yourself. And whether that works or not, it's good for you to do that. <laughs> a little like cod liver oil. Uh, I would like to, if there is any merit, and I'm, I'm certain that some benefit will come, to some of us at least during these seven days. The first teacher I had of these things was a man named Krishnamurti, who I met many, many years ago, who simply changed my life, um, introducing the simple idea of pay attention. He, those of you who have read his stuff or have seen him, you know that he was on fire with it. 
Uh, he died in 1986 on February 17th. But we won't be here then. And a lot of what we're doing uh, in commenting on this sutta, uh, some of the insights that I have, I owe to him and his teaching, which has been instrumental in my own practice for many, many years. The first time I met him, we spent 10 days together because he was at a university and very few people knew who he was. I didn't know who he was either. Um, I wound up spending a lot of time with him because there was no one else interested. And we talked and walked and without going into all of that, when it was time to go our separate ways, I asked him for any teachings. What should I do now? He didn't talk about sitting. He always talked about awareness. It's not that he was against sitting, but awareness was more fundamental for him. Sitting was a great way to bring it about. And I think he was concerned about sitting becoming a fetish, an obsession, and coming to stand for the whole, where it's, it's, only a, it's, a, it's part of living. At any rate, his advice was, start paying attention as to how you actually live. And then he reinforced it. I know because I wrote it down. How you actually live and said it with great force. And then he added, not how you think you live or how you should live, but how you actually live. And the only way to know that is to just start paying attention as you live out your days from moment to moment. Just start to notice and be as fresh and as open as you can. Okay. That teaching has been tremendously helpful to me. And it's part of self-knowing, the self-knowledge. I don't want to go too much into this tonight, but I prefer the term self-knowing. I think it's important for you to uh, see this distinction because of the, the thrust of the sutra that we'll be talking about. Self-knowledge implies an accumulation that is like knowledge, libraries full of knowledge. Your mind, through study, can have a lot of knowledge. Accumulated information, insights, understandings, explanations that are accumulated. They're added on one to the other, perhaps refined. And they're on that level in understanding but when you come to the self, trying to understand ourselves, mainly the Buddha was not talking about that kind of knowledge. And so knowing, a verb, is more appropriate, as far as I can tell. And knowing happens in this moment. The sutra we're talking about is about the here and now, which we hear so much about. It's about this moment. It's not about filling up a notebook with insights. That just adds to the story of me and my life, starring me, produced by me, directed by me, and all those other things at the end of a movie, all those, I, what's a, I don't know, a grip, a gaffer, all these, all me. And so uh, it's not meant to just add on another piece to our inner resume. 
but rather it's to see clearly how we're living in the moment and in that seeing. There's a knowing that in a sense is its own value. Right in that moment we learn something about ourselves uh, that changes what's happening in the moment more and more in a beneficial way. Let me briefly talk about the, this sutra and then begin to apply it to our life here at IMS on this retreat. I'm just going to give you a sense of it and then we'll go, <clears throat> go into more detail as the week unfolds. I think the easiest way for me to just read you part of it, not the whole thing. Uh, Body Karata is, had many translations. I've many commentaries and translations. The sense of one of them, which makes sense to me, is uh, what is true solitude? Uh, and I think um, one view in the Buddha's view is it's a, a meaning of the word solitude that is not commonly expressed. That it, it's more like an inner teaching. So many spiritual teachings have an outer and inner meaning, like even the word jihad, which we hear a lot about now. Its main meaning is, an in, is the inner war. That's the battle that has to be won by each one of us with ourselves, not necessarily uh, with machine guns. But it's there. That's the heart of what the problem is. And so many teachings have an outer and an inner meaning. And outer solitude, when you hear it, or solitude, you think of a person being alone, probably. I certainly did. And I've done lots of solitude, practice in solitude, self-retreats, in various huts, cottages, retreat centers, etc., etc., over the years. But when I read this, I saw that it added a, a refinement and a much deeper meaning to it. The other meaning is auspicious day, or is it has to do with our attitude towards time. When you keep hearing, so many books have it in titles, and we all use it, it's not going to go out of style. It's been around for a while. Be here now, that was one of the first Western teachers, the power of now. It's about time and our relationship to time, primarily psychological time. Michael and I had a teacher named Maha Gosananda who became the head of the Cambodian uh, Sangha. He was a, a bhikkhu, a monk. And he was very fond of saying, Dharma has to do with whether you eat time or time eats you. <laughs> Those of you who are new, this must sound crazy, but um, I hope it's a little bit clearer as we, go, as we move on. And so an auspicious day, this is a second kind of meaning, and they're not contradictory to me, they, they kind of enrich each other. An auspicious day is a day where we use time properly. And it's used in this approach as a corrective because auspicious among the ancients often meant the movement of the stars, omens, or people looking for signs everywhere. Is this going to be an auspicious time, an auspicious day? Is this act auspicious? Looking for signs of 
of ill or good coming. What the Buddha is saying is, sure, that's all okay, but the real, what's really auspicious is your attitude and relationship to time. Let me make that a little clearer. I'm going to just read to you a little bit this evening. Uh, I think a lot of it will be self-evident, and we're just going to go deeper into it as the week unfolds, because I want to begin to talk about our life here at IMS. I heard these words of the Buddha one time when the Lord was staying at the monastery in the Jeddah Grove in the town of Shravasti. He called all the monks to him and instructed them, bhikkhus, and the bhikkhus replied, we are here. Then the Blessed One taught, I will teach you what is meant by true solitude. That's one, or you could say an auspicious day, but let's leave it as true solitude. I will begin with an outline of the teaching and then I'll give a detailed explanation. Bhikkhus, please listen carefully. Bhikkhus means us too. In one meaning of bhikkhus, it's much more general than monks. It means anyone who's a serious meditator. Uh, a, a more general term that we use around here and Burmese teachers use it, Tibetan teachers use it, uh, is yogis. I personally like that term. So all of you yogis out there, listen up. Blessed one, we are listening. And then the Buddha taught. Do not pursue the past. Hint, get caught up in. We'll go into that with, in more depth. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking, looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now. The practitioner, or you, dwell, the yogi dwells in stability and freedom. We must be diligent today. To wait until tomorrow is too late. Death comes unexpectedly. How can we bargain with it? The sage calls a person who knows how to dwell in, true si in mindfulness and true solitude. In mindfulness, a person who understands true solitude. This should be familiar to many of you, uh, that it's, it's talking about being, in the, being here now. Let's just call it that. It's here and now can't be separated. Here now. And our practice is from day one, as soon as you came here and the instructions began, when we say, bring attention to this in-breath, bring attention to this out-breath, allow it to flow naturally. You've heard it, and some of you have heard it very, very often. It's about the breath, but the breath occurs in this moment. Where else is it going to happen? Where else does anything happen? It happens here and now. You go deeply into that reflection, it's quite mysterious. There's only now, and it keeps being like that. And there really isn't even now or here. In the Diamond Sutra, 
a very famous scholar was very proud of his understanding of the Diamond Sutra and he was on his way to check a Zen master who he didn't appreciate, didn't appreciate his treatment of the Diamond Sutra. He stopped off at a tea house and an old woman who owned the tea house, I'm paraphrasing all this, uh, who also happened to be an adept, a meditator, said, I'll give you everything here free if you can show me the future. No, she said, the Diamond Sutra says there's no future, there's no past, and there isn't even now. So then which mind are you going to be drinking the tea? When he says there is no now, it's really true. <laughs> now it's gone. Where is it? Uh, but, you know, we need to, language freezes things. We need some help. We need some conventions. And, of course, he was stumped. He didn't know which mind he could drink the tea with. Of course, one answer, if you work with this one in koans with Zen teachers, is just to pick up a cup of tea and sip it. It's not a problem. Okay. For the moment, let's leave it at that. When you work with the breath, have you had the experience? You're practicing being in the now that suddenly your mind pulls you away and you're somewhere else. As you get to know those somewhere else's, you'll see that many of them have to do with the past. That son of a, how could he talk to me? I'm quitting my job. As soon as I get back from this retreat, no one talks to me. Or the future. Wow, what a sitting. I can't wait for the next sitting. Boy, this keeps going this way. Wow, now I see why people rave about this meditation stuff. Or getting caught up in the present, thinking, evaluating. You're no longer in touch. Because being here and now means direct, intimate contact with the moment. And if there's lots of thinking about the moment, it's gone. It's somewhere else. And if you listen to the thoughts, you don't even have to make it a special project. But if you like, set aside part of a sitting or a sitting. And some of you have done mental notes practice. and. You just, when it, the mind gets distracted, you'll see a lot of it is past, future, past again, future again, and then we come back to the breath. So you can begin to see that the practice, just the simple attentiveness to a breath, is already teaching us how to dwell, how to live in the now. And what the Buddha is saying is that to do that is what ideal solitude is, real solitude. And it's also auspicious, that is, wonderful things come out of it. Let me uh, clarify how the Buddha, uh, one interpretation that many commentators have made, seems sensible to me. When we think of solitude, we think of being alone. So if you were sitting alone, in a meditation hut somewhere, I think it would be proper English to say that you're spending some time in solitude. There was a, uh, a monk called the Elder, and this sutta is called the Elder, it's a short sutra, and it amplifies this one. And he did everything alone. He went on arms round alone, he sat alone, he did everything alone, and despite the fact 
that there was a, a practice community like the one we have here, quite nearby with the Buddha as part of it available. And he seemed to be kind of proud of it, very happy that he was doing everything alone. And so the monks kind of tattled on him. They went to the Buddha. And the Buddha said, okay, tell him to come and talk to me. And the Buddha didn't put him down. He said, I see that you love solitude. You love to be alone. And the monk said some, according to in one translation, yeah, there's no one ever ahead of me, there's no one ever behind me, there's no one ever alongside of me. I'm always alone. And that this is a wonderful way to practice. The Buddha granted that being alone, the body being separated from the busyness of the world, can be useful. But he, he went into a deeper meaning of solitude. So that's not really the deepest meaning of it at all. that if your body is alone, but your mind is caught up on the future, imagining this, planning that, expecting this, that, and the other, or it's lost in the past, thinking of old joys or old wounds, or it's gotten caught up in something in the present, some kind of a craving about the present, then it's peopled with all these thoughts and images and memories and plans and you're not alone. There's a big crowd there. And so he said, I should try to help him refine what was already a good quality. This has tremendous implications for us as lay people, but really for everyone. Because what's implied already is that solitude, which is almost synonymous with contemplative life sometimes, you always hear about it, monastic life is not restricted by geography or locale or kind of building or, or even being in, it has nothing to do with the depth of the forest that you're in or how high the mountain is or how deep the cave is. It could be right in Cambridge or wherever you live in a crowded city. It is more an inner relationship to time. where we're not enslaved to the mind's incessant fabrication of plans about a future that never comes, and of memories that are all dead and over. And these keep intruding upon our ability to really be fully alive. Other implications are that we're killing life. The Chinese used to say that uh, when you're divided, that is, you're not wholeheartedly doing what you're doing, they call that killing life. They didn't mean literally the body, but they're on a on much more refined level. And when you are at one with what you're doing, just doing what you're doing, they call that giving life to life. Well, I think those of you who have practiced for a while, you know that there's a different quality to being alive when you're mindful, when you're awake, when you're aware. It's not just that it leads to liberation. If I do enough of this, then I'll be a free, sane, liberated uh, person with, who's free of suffering. It's that its benefit is present right there in the moment. There's a certain fragrance to the moment when it's a conscious moment that's fully lived and it can be the most ordinary activity. And this is a very important thing because one of the tremendous jewels of practice is that you can, be, you can come to, to enjoy 
tremendously the ordinariness of life instead of always waiting for something incredible, fantastic, amazing to happen to you so that your life will be real and fulfilling. Anything will do it. I think in part tea ceremony originally was that. Then it became such an incredible production in Japan. And so what we're beginning to talk about now is this present moment. And I'm not asking you to take it as a new ideology, uh, tentatively to hear these words. And of course, you're, being, you're practicing it if you're doing this practice. And begin to learn. Um, what's the big deal about this present moment stuff? Why not fantasize? I'll have all kinds of nice fantasies of when I was there and with, you know, then. And I was 20 years ago. Why not imagine an incredibly beautiful future? What's this always come back to now, here, now, come back to that? Why? I don't see why. I don't like my nows. I'd rather make up a good future and recreate or re revisit I have had some good things happen to me in my life. Why not just keep bringing them back? It's up to you. We have to find out. What I'd like to suggest now is to start bringing this into into our life here. When we're at home, most of us are mainly working and perhaps we're doing some sitting. Even the most zealous one of us. Perhaps we get some sitting in the morning and then again in the evening. During the day, we're at work or raising a family or in school or something like that. And then we come here and everything's reversed. We get to sit a lot. And that's part of why we come here, a large part. Silence and so forth. But you know, daily life is here too. And I'd like to suggest a model of practice that everything is life, wherever you go. And it's not that IMS, an intensive practice retreat, believe it or not, is just another slice of life. You can make it so special, and often we do, that then you have to work so hard to integrate it with going back home. Made that so unspecial. But what if you didn't do that in the first place? And you took the Buddha at his word when he says, be mindful in all four postures, sitting, standing, lying down, walking, which is one of the most unromantic, unpoetic, deep spiritual statements in the history of all spiritual thought. Because there's so much in that statement, but it's so plain that you can just pass it over right. You know, it's just exercise and posture. It's saying that mindfulness is a way of living. Okay, so we're here. And it's very easy to get fixated on the sitting. And I would say, by all means, get fixated on the sitting when you're sitting. And then let it go. Exhale it. And when you walk, give your wholehearted attention to walking meditation. And if you're sipping a cup of tea, give your wholehearted attention to the cup of tea. This is practicing now, here. Then we get to the famous yogi jobs, infamous. Let me quickly, because I, I want to get a, uh, definitely encourage you to do something before uh, 
this talk ends. I, I'm not judging you, and this is not a, an evaluation anyway. You all have yogi jobs, I'm assuming. How many of you really, just genuinely like the job? You got a job that you really like. The, this, I assume you got it by the luck of the draw or through some connivance. <laughs> it's designed for it to be just random, but I know how brilliant you all are. <laughs> okay, how many of you really genuinely, you know, you really like the job? You just, even if it just was given to you, you would just do it anyway. Show of hands. Okay, how many of you, honestly, you're not crazy about what you're doing, ranging from indifference to I can't stand it, I can't wait till it's over so I can get to do some important things. Show of hands. Wonderful. <laughs> okay, you're the fortunate ones. These are... These other people are in big trouble. <laughs> Shantideva, a very great Indian master, said, the biggest obstacle to spiritual development is to have no obstacles. So if you really hate your yogi job, then that's how much liberation you can get from it. Because you're the one who's put yourself, who's enslaved yourself. It's just what it is. If it's mopping a toilet, it's that. If it's washing out a pot, it's that. Now, being in the now, as you're beginning to perhaps see, is a much more powerful teaching than it may sound. Because if you don't like the job you're with, there's a good chance your mind is not in the now. You're hurrying it up so you can get out of there and take a walk around the loop. Or you're kind of doing it in a begrudging way and perhaps thinking of all kinds of other things. You're longing for a better future? Or you start thinking about other retreats where you had a better job? <laughs> or you're angry at your friend who got such a, a job that takes six seconds, and here you are wa at the dishwashing machine, with, you know, like in the boiler room of an old ship? In the summer, it's more like that. And there's resentment. I'm not telling you to fake it. I'm not saying love your work. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, come to know the way it is for you when you take on your yogi job. Be honest, just see it and work with it. Because the Buddhist teaching is not saying stamp out the past. It's not saying stamp out the future. There will be no past or future. What would that be like? And it's not saying, uh, it's saying relate to the present in an intimate, direct way. It's saying not to not grasp onto, to cling to, to feed, to extend the life of future and past by nourishing them with your own identifications and essentially you're not awake. In those moments you're not awake. And you, I probably you all know this, dishes at home, I've seen it, I've done it, can be spotless at the end and you weren't there. But I don't mean high class, you know, liberated, there's nobody here doing the dishes. I mean, you were thinking about the movies the whole time that you were going to go to. So use your yogi job by paying attention to it. And of course, what you may discover, as many have, is that out of that can come a very different relationship to it. If you can learn how to do that, it might when you go home to your own job, whatever that job is. Or really, the lessons learned from it transfer to virtually everything. You might begin to see that it's so much easier 
they're just open to the present moment, no matter what that moment is, then all the exhausting strategies and distractions that we develop to keep from feeling what's happening to us. It's a key part of our teaching, as many of you know. It's just easier to surrender. And we're learning that when we talk about allowing the breath to just be the way it is, being mindful of the breath, whether it's attractive or and flowing freely or pinched off and you're, it's not enjoyable to breathe. Learning how to keep mindfulness fresh and clear in the face of all the different qualities of breathing. You're already beginning to learn that lesson. And our day here is made up of all these different situations. We have a daily life. Not only a yogi job, but let's say I look in the yoga room and many of you are doing some yoga or other exercise movements. Fine, you, you know, it's helpful. Just bring simple mindfulness to it. See if it makes a difference. See if you're in the moment or is the mind comparing, uh, maybe you're doing the posture with an eye towards appearing on the cover of yoga journals someday. Or it's just mindlessly just using the body. They say exercise is good. You live longer, lowers this, and the blood pressure. And you know, just go through the motions, half there and half somewhere else. Just see, are you really just simply doing yoga? When you dress, get dressed, get undressed. When you wash, are you there? Upandita, a Burmese teacher who had his big impact here, would sometimes in interviews surprise people and not ask them about uh, how's your sitting going. You would just say, were you awake when you were getting dressed? And if you said yes, well, what did you see? What happened while you were getting dressed? Duh. <laughs> see, that's not important. What's important is the sitting and the walking. That's officially spiritual. This other stuff is just like stuff at home. You can do that anytime. What's, all, you know, what's the big deal? What's he driving us crazy here for. It's to begin to view life as a whole rather than as fragmented. Let me give you a, a story that affected me tremendously. Talk about fragmentation. This may be the most extreme and the, and the price we pay for fragmentation that, I've, that I know of. I don't know, some of you may... There was a team of high rope walkers called the Flying Wallendas. They would walk the high wire and they appeared all over, the, they were world famous. And I had read before, I saw this on, an event on TV which was amazing to me, an interview with him. And one of the things he said, which, uh, which I remembered out of a long interview to the interview, he said, for me, Life is just on the high wire. Everything else is just waiting. I felt like, wow, poor guy. I mean, you'd have to be on the, on the wire a lot. Or looking forward to the wire or whatever. Anyway, this evening, I was chomping on an avocado and sprout sandwich, watching the Flying Willendas on TV somewhere in Latin America. And it was him. It was the father who was the the head of the whole thing, he and his family all did it together. And he was strongly advised to not go on. It was an incredible wind going. 
was a gale, a huge storm, and he was strongly advised to not go up to it. I was outdoors. And according to what we later found out, uh, it was a struggle. He just refused. He insisted on going up. After all, that's what life is. And sitting there, eating my little sandwich, whole grain bread, <laughs> and I saw him blown to his death. He started, he's walking on the wire, and the wind just blew him, and you can hear him scream. Now, that's specialization. That's fragmentation. Now, all of us, of course, probably you know what I'm talking about, maybe to a lesser extent. Maybe it's your work, maybe it's photography, maybe it's tennis, maybe it's lovemaking. And we just, when we become obsessional, so we become sex maniacs, and uh, the only time we're happy is when we have our racket and whacking the ball, or it could be anything. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, do you want to wind up by this, like the senior Walenda? not literally dying with your physical body. And so dharma is a way of, of living. And, and apparently we need to learn how to live. The human race, that is. I don't think this one needs to be debated. All we have to do is look around the world and we know that we humans don't know how to live. We don't know how to live with each other. I don't have to say more, do I? That's so obvious. No, I don't know about... Okay, maybe there's someone who disagrees with that. Uh, I would say we'd never have known how to live if you read history. And one way of looking at the Buddha's teachings is giving us some help, some practices, some teachings. But basically, that's what I mean for me. It's a vehicle to get us to begin to live in a different way, to examine our life, to look carefully, to see what brings about suffering, what doesn't. It's actually a message of great hope. It's not to be locked into suffering, but if we don't start with what's there, and that's what the teachings are saying, and often what's there is not so pleasant, we don't want that, well, how can anything good come out of that? And so the teachings have everything to do with becoming real, so that life is real if, if we're real. And self-knowing, self-knowledge, which is the beginnings of wisdom, even ordinary self-knowledge, start paying attention to how you eat, how you dress, how you wash up, how you relate to time. Just start to notice it. In addition to seeing the impermanent, empty nature of everything, which is very, very important, and that's a deeper learning, but you can also learn all kinds of ordinary things that are very, very helpful at no extra cost, really. Mindfulness is that magical. If you pay attention, there's a lot to be learned. Begin to see how much you need to eat, really, to have good energy. Are you eating too much, not enough? Now here, from the point of view of a yogi, are you eating foods which make the mind dull, not only too much, but the wrong foods? This learning how to live has to be an individual matter. I'm not suggesting one size fits all at all, at all and that we all have to look alike, hardly. Begin to pay attention as to how you actually live. So we're back to Krishnamurti. How do you actually live? And how do you actually live here at IMS? A retreat is an intentionally designed environment designed to help us get free. It's the only reason for it. Why else would we put ourselves through this? 
Now, you can just use ordinary life as well, but this one sh sharpens our ability. For example, in, in self-knowledge, I'll end with this. What's the self? What is it you're coming to know? Well, that's a basic investigation that we have to do. We don't just throw the term around. What does that mean? Me, I. And know, to know myself. What is that? It must have something to do with seeing and attention, with a willingness to learn from what we see and hear, with a, a willingness to start unlearning what is unproductive, which produces suffering for ourselves and the people in our lives, replacing it with, pe with ways of living that uh, are sane, beneficial, and countless people before us have done it and are doing it, and so can we. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.